So I don't really don't load the front end of a sermon with a bunch of announcements, uh, but we got a couple things coming up. So we're in the season of Advent. I don't know what church tradition uh, that you grew up in, church culture that you grew up in. Some of you grew up, you know, Lutheran or Catholic, and you definitely leaned into um, the, the liturgies of Advent. Um, others of you didn't grow up in the church at all, and you have no idea what Advent is. So quick little, what is Advent? Advent is uh, the four weeks before uh, Christmas. So Christmas when we celebrate the birth of Christ. And the four weeks running up, we really lean into um, longing for uh, Christ to come. But not, we're not just longing for uh, the celebration. It's not a run up to the Christmas shopping season, right? We're not just like, gear, like pumping each other up before uh, the Christmas Eve, like Lollapalooza or something. Like this is, we're entering into the ancient story, like stepping into the ancient stream of many, many generations that have come before us. Not just... So we think about 2,000 years have passed since Christ has come. Jesus Christ, historical Jesus, you know, came into the, to the world, uh, the, the thing that we're all familiar with, you know, little baby Jesus in the manger. 2,000 years have passed since that event. Before that, there's thousands of years of God's people groaning and longing for God to restore this broken world. Longing for the curse to be lifted, Right? for the winter of Narnia to be unthawed. This long, long time, God's people have been wanting God to come to them and to appear to them and to restore all things. And so we're, we're stepping into an ancient river of many, many, many generations, uh, ages of God's people longing for the same thing, longing for God to come and to meet us. And so the songs that we sing, the... Uh, Liturgy that we confess, um, the, all those things are going to be hyper-specific. They're going to be very thematic with leaning into, uh, in solidarity, sort of linking arms with other uh, believers in church history longing for Christ. Uh, and we have an interesting vantage point as, uh, as people living in 2021. So we, have in, we live in this world of the already not yet kingdom of God. And I know that's a weird theological phrase, but... We live in a world where Christ has already come. So it's a little weird to long for something that's already happened. That this doesn't make a lot of sense. So there's like this double longing. We're leaning back to remember the significance of the birth of Christ. But we're also leaning forward, wanting, longing, praying for, expecting Jesus to come back again to invade the earth with heaven and to restore all things. So that's essentially Advent. It's this sort of tension. The tension of living in the already not yet kingdom, and that's why we're calling it awaiting the king. That's essentially what we're doing, is awaiting King Jesus to return. Um, one of the things that we're doing, a little housekeeping, um, we, our bread and butter as a church is hospitality. I just think that that's what you guys do best. Uh, many of you in here are not only exceptional cooks, but you, you open your home generously to people to come in, uh, whether it's friends, family, um, unbelievers, lost people, broken people. I think everyone in our church just does an exceptional job at doing what the Bible calls hospitality. And, uh, and so one of the things that we want to do intentionally is use hospitality to reach the lost in Clinton and the greater gateway. And so this week we're doing, um, God, I don't have um, the flyer. So this week on Wednesday, we're doing a thing called Big Table. 
So essentially what this is, is our church gathering in community and getting on mission. So Wednesday, we're going to combine our community groups, which are essentially small groups that meet in the home and eat a meal together. We're going to combine those groups. We have two of them. We're going to combine them, and we're going to get around a big table here. And uh, we, might even, we might even link all these tables together to make one big, long, like, hall kind of feel, whatever. It's going to be great. So we're going to throw a meal, and we're going to invite the community into that. So we may get one person off the street. We may get 15. We may get 50. We don't know. We want to love on the strangers, people that are strangers to God. That's what biblical hospitality is. And so we don't have a lot of money as a church plant. We don't have a lot of um, production. But what we do have is uh, willing and generous hearts to reach out to the lost. And so we're going to do that through food. The simplest way we can get on mission is through food. All right, so that's it. That's the announcements I'm going to go through. We are um, we're in Isaiah. It's a classic Advent text. Isaiah 9. So if you have a Bible, uh, grab that Bible. If you have it on an app, pull it up to Isaiah. This is an Old Testament prophetic book. It's a huge, it's a huge book. So if you just kind of fumble around in the back of your Bible, you'll eventually find it. Open up to Isaiah 9. And it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning. Make the text clear. Make your word clear to us that we would come away feeling refreshed, knowing that you are near to us, speaking a word of hope to us. All of us in this room are in different seasons of heartbreak, different seasons of exhaustion, uh, different seasons of burnout, and I pray, God, that you would speak uh, to us uh, and apply your word and your gospel to us in a way that's refreshing, renewing. And we know that your word doesn't return void. You, you will accomplish what you set out to do this morning. And so I pray that you do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to drop in a Lord of the Rings quote. And my, my wife hates Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so those of you that hate Lord of the Rings, just look, I can't be all things to all people. Apostle Paul could, but I can't. So Lord of the Rings, uh, there's that famous line in the Lord of the Rings. You all know it. It says, one ring to rule them all. One ring to find them, one ring to bring them all 
and in the darkness bind them. So good stories like this, like Lord of the Rings, they leave an impact because they point us to and refer to the ultimate story. So God's story is the ultimate story. And so really, really good stories point us to God's story. And so this season, in the Advent season, we celebrate uh, the ancient story of God coming to us as a king. So this is a true story. It's not a fictional story. Uh, It's a story of expectation. It's a story of hope. Advent is first and foremost God's story. So the best stories, I believe that the best stories, you just, you see this play out. The best stories help us make sense of evil. They help us make sense of darkness. They help us make sense of problems, like, like big problems. Good stories help us make sense of the darkness that surrounds us in this world. And so the best stories, they name our demons. They reveal our problems. They don't, they don't help us hide from them. They help us confront them and achieve victory over them. So the best stories are not Hallmark stories. I know some of you love Hallmark stories. It's like, they're like candy, you know? It's fine. A little cookie now and then is fine. But the Hallmark stories, they're basically escapism, you know? The best stories help, they give us a torch and they say, go into the darkness. I'll help you light it up. I'll help you make sense of it. That's what Advent does. Hands us the torch, sends us into the darkness. We need this because you guys live in, we all live in a world that's dark, full of dark things, full of things like blood cancer, child abuse, murder. There's a curse that causes cities to decay, hearts to be lonely, joyless, hopeless. Darkness surrounds you and I, all of us. Threatens to overtake us daily. But the story of Advent is the story of Christ. It's the good news that the darkness will not overcome us. And no matter how menacing it is, no matter how evil it is, it will not bind us, will not overtake us because the light of Jesus is shown. So this is what the prophet Isaiah, so the Old Testament prophet, this is a man of God, speaking and inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoke a word of hope. This is what he prophesied would happen. He wrote, verse, verse 2, we can just go through that again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has a light shone. So thousands of years ago, essentially, this, the reason this is always read around the Advent season is because thousands of years ago, Isaiah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, predicted and prophesied that one day there would be a king that would come and would bring a light of hope. So Isaiah's poetry, most of this, if you ever look at your Bibles, this is just a really quick Bible study tip. When you read your Bible, if you have a hard copy, uh, you should be able to see there's indentation in this. That means it's poetry. So there's a lot of metaphorical language going on in here. And uh, it's, the reason for that is that it's, it's pushing and pushing and trying to poke into your heart, trying to get lodged. This is, this is what God wants to do with you right now, is that God doesn't just want to give you information. That old saying, you know, he doesn't want to give you just information. He wants to give you transformation. And so this is Isaiah groping for language to uh, point us towards the, the hope that Christ gives us by coming and appearing to us. And so the original readers that Isaiah was writing to were people who walked in really, really thick darkness, deep darkness. 
Their land was ravaged by wars, both foreign and internal coups. They had endured king after king, um, ruler after ruler, hero after hero, demagogue after demagogue, influencer after influencer, false prophet after false prophet, and they were exhausted. The people of Isaiah's day were exhausted. And the people were wondering if they were destined to live in perpetual letdown or burnout. Was there hope for them? Would their land, their livelihood, their life, would, they, would it ever flourish again? Because it's not. Or would the darkness overtake them? So their circumstances might have been different, specifically might have been different. But fundamentally, they're the same people. You are the same as them. You still struggle, long for the welfare of your city to be renewed. You, know, you still long for your land to bloom. You still long for your family to flourish. You still long. We know something's broken. And we want it to be restored. So Isaiah prophesied that the hope, that their hope would come from a king, a ruler, who would lead the people to flourishing. So look at verse 3. It says, you, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So this king apparently will be one who will usher in a, a time of bounty, a season of plenty. There will be rejoicing and overflow, a lot like a, a feast at a meal table, right? Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is a kind of confusing uh, section of the poem. But what, is, what he's saying here is that this king will be like a freedom fighter, who fought like uh, the freedom fighters that fought at the ancient battle of Midian. You guys have heard of the, uh, the character Gideon? Like, is a popular Bible hero. Uh, Gideon was somebody that fought. He was greatly outnumbered. It was Gideon's mighty men that defeated an army that was vastly, you know, outnumbered them. This king that Isaiah is speaking of will be like the mighty Gideon defeating the forces that outnumbered him. And in the story, he has a torch in one hand and he has a trumpet in the other. I love that imagery. The Bible is so rich in symbolism and imagery. There's a torch in one hand and a trumpet in the other hand. This king will break all oppression. This king will overthrow all tyranny. This king will release those enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. But this freedom, the freedom that this king brings is not ultimately one with like crude weapons of war. So it will not be won by the critical theories of academics, in their ivory towers. It won't be won by populist politicians that line up in front of us every single election cycle. It won't be won by gun, pen, or cell phone. None of those things can actually truly liberate us. Only the cross of Christ can do that. As the song, there's, a, there's an artist named Josh Garrels, and if you ever listen to him, he's got a a song that, uh, I love this little section of his song. He says, Though they may surround us like lions and crush us on all sides, we may fall, but we will rise. Not by my might or my power or by the strength of swords, only through your love, my Lord, all that's lost will be restored. And so Isaiah goes on in verse 5. He says, 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So what Isaiah is saying here is very, very similar to what you'd find in Psalm 46, 9. And if you guys have a reference Bible, uh, like I'm not doing anything crazy with the text. Um, A lot of smarter people than me have compiled a list of like cross-references if you have a Bible that's like a reference Bible. And it's really fascinating to read through the scriptures and be like, oh, there's a little like tiny little letter that says, check out these verses that correlate with this verse. And it oftentimes sheds light on, oh, that was really weird. I didn't understand that verse until I cross-referenced it. And there's similar verses. And so that's a, just a little tidbit here. That's uh, in the Reformed tradition. I don't remember they had a word for this. They had a phrase for this. But basically, when you bump into a really tough-to-read passage of the Bible, you interpret that passage in light of easy, more easily interpreted passages. So less clear passages are interpreted in light of more clear passages. So sometimes you, go, you, know, you roll up into a passage and you're like, I have no idea what that means. Super bizarre. Why is he saying that? Garment rolled in blood. Well, Psalm 46.9 says, This king, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. And he breaks the bow and he shatters the spear and he burns the chariots with fire. This is very similar poetic language. So what, the, what, what, the, what they're getting at is that this king will bring real and lasting peace. When this king comes, the, the soldier won't need his combat boots. When this king comes, the homeowner will no longer need to be concerned with putting a gun under his pillow. When this king comes, the weak will no longer need to carry mace when they run through a dark park at night. When this king comes, there will be real peace that will not have an end. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this king is not an imaginary king. He's not just a king of poetry and story. He's not just the king of fiction. He's the king of history. This king is Jesus of Nazareth, who was born 2,000 years ago as a, to a humble carpenter. Isaiah proclaims that this man, uh, the government will be upon his shoulders, which is just a fancy way of saying that he's going to be a king. He's going to have a kingdom. He's going to rule it. He shall be a great king, be renowned for his wisdom, feared for his awesome power, loved for his fatherly heart, his tender heart. He doesn't just rule with a wrought iron. The tender heart. And he's crowned as the prince of peace. So verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will do this. This prophecy. God promises that he will do this. God has spoken. God will bring forward his rule and reign through his son, Jesus, and every single person will see. All flesh will see. And when it's fully revealed, there will be justice and righteousness on the earth. And and I know as a millennial, like our generation, we cry out for justice. I was reading, or I was listening to a podcast recently. There's a guy who, a smart guy who wrote a book. Um, and he, he categorizes people in America. You've heard the phrase real America? 
You know, there's real America, and then, well, he, these are category names, like sociological terms, for people in uh, our country and how they think. Well, he categorized them as real America, smart America, uh, some other America, and then just America. Just America is the people you see burning, um, you know, burning down, like, downtowns and throwing stuff in the windows and rioting in the name, in the wake of all those, like, shootings and black violence and all those types of things. You've seen that in the news. You have to be living under a rock to not see that. And so one of the things that this section of, there's a section of our population that is consistently crying out for justice, 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 you know, justice for black lives, justice for Kyle Rittenhouse, justice for the victims, justice for the unborn, justice, 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 justice. And so this passage here, this isn't just like floofy language that we just tack on to some Christmas season, like God promises to bring us real and lasting justice. There will be real justice, not the counterfeit sort of half justice that we see all over the world. We real justice that the Prince of Peace brings. But that, that day has not fully come yet. You know that. That's why we still cry and groan and long for justice. This is the tension. It's the tension that we live in in the Advent season. It's the tension of living in the already not yet kingdom. So the king has been revealed to us as Christ on the cross. He's been proven to us in the resurrection. He proved his claims, resurrected from the dead. And he right now has ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the father. He's really king right now, ruling and reigning over all creation. But we wait We are waiting right now for the day when he will finally come again to fully invade earth with the kingdom of heaven. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're wanting. That's what Jesus taught us to, to pray like. Someday, it will be like heaven on earth. There's no injustice in heaven. There's, there's no murder in heaven. There's no cancer in heaven. There's no you know fields that don't produce in heaven. Like it's... When heaven comes down fully, it will be heaven on earth. So the question for us is, where is the light? Like, that's the, that's the theme for this morning is light. Where is the light? If, if his kingdom is a kingdom of light, like, where do we see it manifest? Where do we see the kingdom of light manifest? Well, the Bible says that we see light first and foremost in the hearts of men and women who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we see light. Those who have faith in Jesus as the one who died for your sins, cleansed your heart of all unrighteousness. He then fills you with his spirit, which his spirit is the spirit of light. So that your, your heart, your dark eyes, your heart is enlightened by God. That's first and foremost where we see the light of Christ is the transformation of a human being into a new creation. That's what the spirit does. All men and women who have not yet repented and surrendered to Christ as king, they, the Bible says that you have dark hearts. They have dark hearts. You've not yet put your trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you hear that and you're like, that isn't, that's, not, that's not resonating with my experience. I don't know what that's like to be enlightened, to be transformed, to, to know light that's living inside of me. The Bible says, repent, turn from your sin and believe that Jesus died for your sins 
and desires to enter into your life and to transform you. And then your destiny, we talk about stories, right? Stories have an ending. When you believe in Jesus, the end of your story lines up with the end of Jesus' story. That's the, whole, uh, that's the whole good news of the gospel is that Christ is risen, but so will you. You will also rise. That you're, you're not destined to grind out your job, uh, die with a shot knee, and then that's it. Your destiny is to rise from the grave, to overcome the curse, and to live with God in heaven for the rest of your days. And if you believe in Jesus, that is your destiny. So if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, believe in Jesus. Put your trust in him. Faith, have faith in Christ, and you will have the Spirit of God enlighten you and give light to your, to your soul. The other place that uh, we see light more visibly is through the church, through the local church. It's a really underwhelming, ordinary group of people. This is where we see the light of Christ. So we see the light of Jesus. Jesus manifests his, his spiritual kingdom of light in the midst of a dark world primarily through the visible church. And I know it doesn't feel like that. You're like, man, uh, I've been burned by this church. I've been screwed over by this church. Uh, I've been hurt by people in the church. Like, you have a lot of baggage in a church. I know that. Church is a place that sometimes feels like the same amount of darkness is in the church as it is outside of the church. But the text, the Bible, doesn't promise that you're the light. The Bible promises that Jesus is the light. And so it's Jesus working through the local church, working through his servants, working through the body. That's where we see the light. So Jesus promises that he will build the church and he will shine a light in the dark world through the local church. This is why he refers to the church as a city on a hill in the Sermon on the Mount, the famous passage that everybody's familiar with. Isaiah calls the, uh, God's people a light to the nations. To the nations, to everybody. We're, we're, we're to be this, the church is to be a light to all people groups in all places. This is why we send missionaries. Why we plant churches other places. My favorite verse uh, that describes the church's light is 1 Peter 2.9. It says, but you are a chosen race. This is referring to God's people that have faith in Christ. So all those in this room that have faith in Christ as king, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Do you hear that? Out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the local church is like Gideon's mighty men. So we're a scrappy, ragtag, um, outnumbered, outgunned group of people in a dark world that wants to destroy us. And, and it's like Chesterton, uh, there's this famous quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, there's nothing better than fighting a losing battle and not losing. There's nothing better in this. That's why this great stories that we love, the great movies that we watch, they're all about that. It's like unlikely heroes, unlikely winners, you know? That's what we are as the church. We're doing battle with forces that greatly outnumber us. So we have a torch in one hand, which is the spirit of Christ. We're given God's very presence. He is with us, among us, promises to be present with us. This is the, the light, the beacon that we shine to the broken world. And then we also have a trumpet in the other hand. The trumpet is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we, we blow this victory call that Jesus really did do something. 
When he came into the world 2,000 years ago, he didn't just mess around and give a bunch of moral teachings. He actually defeated evil. He defeated Satan. He resurrected from the dead. And so we have this, this gospel that we trumpet to the nations. We trumpet to Clinton. We trumpet to the gateway. We go and tell it because it's really good news. And this is why it's super, super important to belong to a local church. And I know as a pastor, you might be thinking, it's, it's of course, you have a vested interest in this. Well, of course I do. I believe that this is the rescue, this is the means in which God has ordained to rescue the lost and to, and to push back darkness in the earth. We, we are, it's clear that we are God's people sent out to be a light to the nation, to be a, to be a, a, a torch. So every one of you, every one of you has a personal relationship with Jesus if you have faith. And so you, I can't repent for you. So coming to church doesn't save you, all that. It is you and God, for sure. That's first and foremost your primary responsibility is to, um, is to be in that relationship with Christ yourself. Now, when you, so that means you are a torch bearer in every place that you go. When you go to the coffee shop, uh, when you go to work, when you go play, when you go on vacation, when you parent your kids, whatever, you are bringing the light of Christ into all those situations. But when we come together, the imagery in the Bible is that we bring our little lights to bear and make a huge light. So when we do life together and belong meaningfully to the local church, we're consolidating our light. And you can just picture it becoming like a giant bonfire. You've seen those like pallet bonfires? They're just roaring. They're huge. I've never actually got the privilege to do one of those because I don't live in the country. But I envy all you that have land. You could just pile up a bunch of dry pallets and light it on fire. That's the image, I think, that is our church, our local church, and all local churches. They are torches in the midst of a dark world because we have the presence of Christ in our community. So this Advent season, my, my encouragement is to not only lean into Christ in your private rhythms, your private family rhythms, because this seasons like this, like the holidays, is usually when we become more mindful of our family rhythms. How are we going to go to this person's house and do this and do that? My encouragement to you is do that to the glory of God, but also lean into the broader community because that is where you will find light. You'll find the presence of Christ working in and among our community to be on mission to the lost and broken world because there are people, there are people here that do not know. They are living in darkness, abject darkness. And they've never seen the light. And how are they going to see it unless we band together and hold up that torch and blow that trumpet? We're going to need God's help for that. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us long for your presence this Advent season and that it wouldn't just be like words that we're saying and melodies that we play. and Wake us up out of the, out of the rote complacency that we, we sometimes approach these seasons with and i pray that that we would with fresh eyes and fresh hearts um, cherish um, the gospel that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you and just just lean into that and proclaim that to, to all people pray this in jesus name amen